Several years ago, a man contacted me and he asked if I would visit his dying father, who was in a local aged care facility. Well, I'd never met either of these two people before, but uh, I agreed to visit. When I arrived, the son was present and the father was unconscious and in a critical state. Uh, the son advised me that his father had been a churchgoer and had lived a good life. And therefore, uh, the son was confident that his father would go to heaven. But I did notice there was no mention of Jesus or trusting in him or faith. Uh, at the son's suggestion, I, I spoke a monologue with the father, uh, even though he was unconscious uh, I hoped that he was still able to hear me. And this is what I said. I said to him, the Bible provides us with truth that answers the big questions of life about God and about what happens after death. I said to him, the Bible tells us that God's standard for entry to heaven is perfection. And which of us is perfect? Uh, the bad news is that a good life is not good enough. Uh, the good news is that God has provided a way for us to be fit for heaven. And we need to simply ask for forgiveness for our imperfections. It is a gift that Jesus offers us through his death on the cross. And it's a gift that we each need to personally accept. I advise that uh, not being able to speak with him, remember he's unconscious, uh, I had no way of knowing uh, if he had already accepted this gift. And so I said, if he had done so, then I assured him he could be sure that Christ would walk with him through the valley of the shadow of death and that he would be welcomed into heaven. However, if he had not yet done so, then the good news was that it was not too late. He could ask for and receive this gift there and then. I then explained that I would pray a prayer of commitment uh, which he could make his own in the quietness of his own heart and mind if he so wished. Now, I had to pause halfway through the prayer due to a loud tunnel announcement. And at this point, uh, the son interrupted me, uh, somewhat agitated, and indicated that that would be enough. Uh, I said to him I would finish the prayer. Uh, I then did so, and I read Psalm 23 to his father and assured him that this became true for all who had accepted Jesus and this gift of forgiveness. Well, afterwards, uh, in the hallway outside the father's room, I had a discussion with the son for about 10 minutes. Uh, the son expressed his concern about what I had said to his father. Uh, the son believed that being positive was the best strategy. I suggested that having the truth was better. Uh, in the son's view, uh, truth was relative. And he reiterated that his father had always been a kind, generous, church-going person. And that this in itself would be enough for God to accept him. Well, the father never did regain consciousness, so I don't know where he stood before the Lord. However, the picture painted by the son of his father seemed to me and had a sort of a smack of what we would call nominal Christianity. Now, what is a nominal Christian? A nominal Christian is someone who is a Christian in name only. Uh, there is no inner re heart reality. It is something that is merely external. Uh, they go through the motions of doing what Christians do, uh, going to church, etc., etc. But it's not an undergirded by a personal faith and trust in Christ. 
They have never asked Christ to deal with their sin problem. Now, the Bible clearly affirms that there will always be nominal believers in the midst of God's true people. Uh, this was true of Israel uh, throughout the Bible's history. Whilst the majority of the nation was faithless to the covenants, there remained a faithful minority, uh, a remnant who were truly God's people and who held truly to him. Uh, if we go to Romans chapters 9 to 11, uh, the apostle Paul wrestles with the issue of how to reconcile uh, God's promises to Abraham and his descendants with the reality that the majority of Jews had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. And his answer to that is that the promise was not to every member of the ethnic nation of Israel, but to those who responded in faith to the promise. In other words, not the physical Israel, but the spiritual Israel. Uh, Romans 9 verse 6 says this, it is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. Uh, 9 verse 8, it is not the natural children, in other words, the physical Israelites by ethnicity who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. And so we see that this truth carries through to the New Testament church. Uh, not all who are in the church are truly the church. And this is the teaching point of the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Uh, true believers and nominal believers will exist together in the church like wheat and weeds together in a field. And they'll only be separated on the final day of judgment. Now, coming to our passage today, uh, the teaching of Christ recorded in this tail section of chapter 13 of Luke is actually directed to what we would call nominal believers. Of course, the truths articulated in this passage also apply to people outside of the church, but its power and its punch is felt particularly when we work closely with the context. Uh, this is not just addressing unbelievers generally, but people in the church who assume that they are believers, but who in reality actually aren't. Now, if you are someone who is truly trusting Christ, uh, please don't switch off thinking there is nothing here for you. For as we will see, there is a challenge for all of us. Uh, we're going to break down the text into two sections. Uh, firstly, uh, the challenge to enter God's kingdom through the narrow door. And secondly, the call for compassion for those who resist entering through the narrow door. Okay, that's where we're going. So firstly, uh, the challenge to enter through the narrow door, uh, verse 22. Uh, then Jesus went through the towns and villages, uh, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Uh, someone asked him, uh, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? Uh, this was actually quite a smug, self-complacent question. Now, the general assumption amongst Jews was that it would be primarily just Jews who would be saved. The number saved on the global scale would be few. Uh, the vast hordes of the Gentile nations would be excluded from the kingdom, 
except for maybe a few uh, proselytes, those who convert to uh, the Jewish faith, uh, those like, for example, Rahab and Ruth in the Old Testament history. So the surprise in Jesus' reply to this Jewish inquirer is not that access will be limited, but rather who will be denied entry. Verse 24, he said to them, and make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Uh, this is actually a stinging slap in the face to this Jewish complacency. He doesn't say some, but many. In effect, he is saying, many of you Jews will try to enter, but will not make it into the kingdom. Hence why Jesus issues this vigorous challenge, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Make every effort is a call to intense exertion, a highly energetic pursuit, and like smelling salts, it's a wake-up call to sleepy complacency and presumption. Jesus is saying, sort this out and do so with great urgency. But what is the urgency? Verse 25. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I do not know you or where you come from. So you see, entry to God's kingdom is a time-limited offer. There will come a point where the narrow door is slammed shut and never to be opened again. And no pleading, no bargaining will change that. And when is the time when the door to the kingdom closes? Either with a person's death or with Christ's return. So why will many be shut out of the kingdom? At what is this narrow door through which they should vigorously seek to enter? At verse 26. Then you will say, but we ate and drank with you and taught in our, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. You see, these people are genuinely taken aback. They really thought they were in the kingdom. They had a familiarity with Jesus. They had an association with Jesus. They had him round for meals at their house. They listened to his teaching. So what was it that they lacked? Well, they were associated with Jesus, but they didn't have a personal connection with Jesus. And nor did Jesus personally know them. You see, association with Jesus does not amount to entering through the narrow door. It actually requires us to personally respond to Jesus. It's a one-to-one -one transaction fueled by faith. It's where we say, Jesus, please forgive my sin. Please reconcile me to God. Please bring me into your kingdom. So you see, the narrow door is a personal relationship with Jesus as our Savior and as our Lord. For those who are only associated with Jesus, the day of discovery that they are shut out of the kingdom is going to evoke 
terrible emotions. Verse 28. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. Uh, there will be weeping and bitter lament at the realization that they are eternally shut out from all the blessings and the joy and the fulfillment of being in the new creation. There will be gnashing of teeth, which indicates this indignant fury that they should be excluded. Shut out. After all I did for the church, I my loyal attendance, my financial giving. But there was yet more shock and surprise for Jesus' Jewish listeners that day. Not only will many Jews be shut out, but many Gentiles will be welcomed in. Verse 29, people will come from east and west, north and south, and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. It will actually be a great day of unexpected reversals, verse 30. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first, and first who will be last. You see, many of the seeming outsiders, the Gentiles, will be inside, and many of the seeming insiders, the Jews, will be outside. Those seemingly first will be last, and those seemingly last will be first. So let's go on to think about uh, the second main point we see in this text, which is the compassion for those who resist entering through the narrow door. Now, the Pharisees were the classic example of nominal believers in Jesus' day. Uh, the Pharisees were religiously active, but inwardly hostile to Jesus. Uh, they had no intention of personally responding with faith and fidelity to Jesus. So it is probably with questionable motives that some Pharisees then come to Jesus with a warning. Verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Uh, whilst we can query the sincerity of the Pharisees' warning, there can be little doubt as to the reality of the perils facing Jesus. He had many enemies. Yet Jesus will not be swayed from his kingdom agenda out of a concern for his own safety. Jesus is unwaveringly committed to doing his father's will and to completing his father's mission at verse 32. He replied, go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. Uh, indeed, uh, Jesus knows that ultimately his goal is not to preserve his life, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem, and he has been ever since back in chapter 9, verse 51. And ironically, the city of God, which contains the temple of God, had a long history of violent rebellion against the word of God. And as the ultimate prophet, Jesus knew that he would receive a similar reception 
as his prophetic predecessors when he reached Jerusalem. Verse 33. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. What a tragic irony. The city of God was in reality a bastion of nominal belief. The city of God was the headquarters of the religious authorities who vociferously opposed the Son of God. Yet what was Jesus' reaction to this citadel of hard-hearted nominal belief? Uh, did Jesus console himself with the knowledge that they would in due course suffer the judgment they deserved? Certainly not. Verse 34. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Do you see what this shows us about Jesus' heart? It is filled with longing and compassion for those flinty-hearted nominal believers. Over the centuries and into the present, the Son of God has yearned to gather them and to protect them and to nurture them like a mother hen for her chicks. But they were not willing to come to him and to be known by him. And therefore, with sadness, Jesus foreshadows their fate as an act of God's judgment on their rebellion. Verse 35. Look, your house is left to you desolate. Uh, this was a prophetic prediction. This would indeed come to pass. In less than 40 years, the proud, rebellious, nominal city would be desolated at the hands of of the Roman forces. But such a judgment would not be the end. Jesus' closing words seem to hold out some hope for the nation's future. Uh, verse 35 continues. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, Jesus is actually quoting here Psalm 118, verse 26, which in its original setting was the priest's declared blessing on those who had come to worship God at his temple. Uh, it seems that Jesus now applies this to his second coming at the end of history. Uh, this is the utterance of those who welcome the return of Christ because they are personally known by him, including believing Jews. Of course, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 11, the branches of Israel that are broken off because of unbelief can be grafted back into the olive tree when they turn back to the Lord. So uh, how does this apply for us today? Uh, the first thing for us to think about is this. Uh, am I personally trusting in Christ as my saviour. Uh, the most obvious thrust of this passage is this challenge uh, for each of us to examine our hearts, uh, to see if we are personally trusting Christ for, for forgiveness and reconciliation to God. Have you got personal with Jesus? 
You see, as this passage warns us, we can be associated with Jesus in many ways. Uh, we may have grown up in a Christian family. Uh, we regularly attend church and midweek home groups. Uh, we give our money to the church. Uh, we sit under Bible teaching. But the warning is that that in itself is not sufficient. It's not sufficient just to have an association with Jesus. It must be a living, breathing, saving relationship through humble faith and dependence on him. And this is true of all people in the church, whether they be in the congregation or in positions of leadership. Now, I've told this uh, true amazing story once before, uh, but it was many years ago and it bears repeating, not least because it is an incredible story. Let me tell you about uh, William Haslam, who actually lived in 19th century England. Uh, William had a near fatal lung illness as a young man, but he actually had a miraculous recovery. And thereafter, he gave himself uh, to God uh, as a, an act of dedication and gratitude to, to live for him. Uh, he became very religious. And in 1842, uh, William Haslam was ordained as a minister in the Anglican Church. In due course, he was appointed as the minister of a small Cornish parish called Baldu. Uh, he was devout, hardworking, uh, charitable. Uh, he studied hard. Yet William felt something was missing. Uh, his preaching focused on the importance of the church for salvation, but didn't really focus on Christ. And it didn't bring him any lasting change or peace, either in himself or in his congregation. Uh, one day, uh, his world was rocked when he, sh he is sharing his concerns with an evangelical minister in a neighboring parish. Uh, the minister advises William that he needs to be converted. Converted? Whatever does he mean by that, thought William. William returns to his parish greatly distressed. Uh, his mind was in turmoil from Thursday, and when Sunday came, uh, he felt totally unfit to take the service. However, he uh, nerved himself for the effort. He didn't know what to preach on, but when he was reading the gospel, he thought he would just say a few words of explanation, and then he would dismiss the people. He took from the gospel for that day the text what think ye of Christ? And he explained how when Christ put this question to the Pharisees, they did not understand what he had come, that he had come to save them. And in William's own words, he then describes the marvelous happening that took place. And I quote, something was telling me all the time, you are no better than the Pharisees. You do not believe Christ has come to save you any more than they did. I do not remember all I said, but I felt a wonderful light and joy coming into my soul. And I was beginning to see what the Pharisees did not see. Uh, whether it was my words or my manner or my look, I don't know. But all of a sudden, a local preacher who happened to be in the congregation stood up and putting up his arms, shouted out in Cornish fashion, 
The minister is converted. The minister is converted. Hallelujah. And in another moment, his voice was lost in the shouts and praises of three or four hundred of the congregation. Instead of rebuking this extraordinary brawling, as I should have done, recounts William in, in former times, I actually joined in the outbreak of praise and then gave out the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. People sang it over and over again. At least 20 other people that morning found real peace through the Savior. And the news spread in all directions that the minister had been converted and that in his own pulpit and by his own sermon. Well, at the church, could not hold the crowds that came in the, that evening. Uh, William recounts, I told the people that if I had died last week, I should have been lost forever. But now the Lord has brought me out of the horrible pit and out of the miry clay and has set my feet, feet on a rock and put a new song in my mouth. Uh, he recounts how the, the church was filled with praise and many were saved. And the glorious work that God had started spread. And actually, revival broke out in many places around that area. Thousands of souls were brought into the kingdom of God through the simple message of justification by faith in the precious blood of Jesus. Looking back on his early years, uh, William recounted, I was profoundly ignorant of the necessity of a changed heart perfectly unconscious that I must be born again of the Spirit. How incredible. That is a story of a heart and a life transformed through faith in Christ. And in each of us, that story needs to play out as well. For we each need to have that heart transformation. We need, each need to be born of the Spirit. Remember what Jesus said on that day to his Jewish listeners. He said, make every effort to enter through the narrow gate. Now, of course, he's not suggesting that we can be saved by our own efforts. The Bible clearly teaches that salvation is by grace and not by works. So what is he saying? He's actually exhorting people to make it their top priority to come to this position of personally knowing him, of personally trusting him. Uh, Jesus is saying, look, investigate him or work through any issues that are holding you back from responding to him in faith. Uh, read the Bible, scour the scriptures, listen to the gospel, pray to God for help of his spirit to understand. Uh, seek the help of trusted Christian friends to talk the issues through. Make every effort is a highly energetic pursuit. There is a screaming urgency to resolve the matter, for nobody knows when their last hour may come, or indeed when Christ may, may come. So that's the first challenge of this passage for each of us to examine our hearts and to say, am I personally trusting Jesus for salvation? The second strand of application is this. Am I as compassionate and concerned for nominal believers as Jesus is? 
You see, this second challenge is to those of us who are in this relationship of faith and obedience to Christ. What is our heart disposition towards those we know whom would possibly form, fall into this category of being nominal believers? Of course, we need to have a word of caution here. Uh, we can never be absolutely certain of the state of somebody else's heart before God. However, often we can have a good idea uh, based on what we hear and what we observe of their speech, of their life, and of their priorities and their passions. Of course, by their fruits, you shall know them. And there's a lot of truth in that. And the question is this, what is our attitude towards those people who we would think and guess are nominal believers? Uh, do we yearn for them to come to Christ with the same compassion as Christ had for rebellious Jerusalem, that city of by and large nominal believers? Do we regularly pray for them? Do we reach out to them? Do we build relational bridges with them? Do we show them hospitality? In short, do we deeply love them? The point is that nobody is beyond hope. And if hard-hearted Jews can soften so that they are grafted back into the olive tree of the church, of God's people, so can nominal Christians that we know, no matter how steeped in their ways, they may seem. I'm going to pray for us briefly, and then I'm going to open up to comments and questions. And I do have, I say, a few uh, questions to get us thinking and to shape our discussion. So let me pray for us before I open up. Heavenly Father, thank you for this challenging word. Uh, thank you for the gospel, which assures us that when we personally trust in Christ, uh, that we can be assured that we have entered through the narrow door and that we can look forward to the day of Christ's return, and that we need not fear the day of our death. So we pray that each of us would have uh, that assurance, that uh, clear assurance in our hearts, and that uh, where we can see people who we suspect are not yet in that place of personally trusting Christ, people in the church, that we would love them deeply and continue to pray for them and to have a heart and compassion for them as Christ did for that city of Jerusalem. Amen.